listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hi folks, this is Swatha. What to n- issues around ha- housing advocacy as with me and Claire Stanley from NDRN, um, as well as Janine Warden from Department of Housing Urban Development and Billy Lynch also with HUD. So if they're here, can they um, say hi or unmute? We can get started. We're both here. Great. Um, Hi, everyone. Sure. Um, So hi, everybody. This is Claire Stanley again. Um, Like Swatha said, I work at the National Disability Rights Network as a public policy analyst, and I'm really excited um, for our two wonderful guest speakers. Um, Swatha and I have a list of a few questions that we just wanted to go through. Um, But before we do that, uh, Janine and Billy, do you want to quickly introduce yourself and tell us what you do at HUD? Sure, I'll start. Um, I'm Janine Warden, and I am the Associate General Counsel for Fair Housing. And what that means is I'm the highest career person in the Office of General Counsel who deals with fair housing and civil rights issues, both from an enforcement perspective and from the perspective of causing the department to comply with um, civil rights requirements. And uh, my primary client is the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, but the entire department is my client. Billy? Hey, everyone. Uh, Billy Lynch. Um, I am Assistant General Counsel, so I work for Janine. And uh, I work on a lot of uh, accessibility matters and race discrimination matters, uh, national origin related issues across the agency, um, both with, uh, as Janine mentioned, Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, and also with the agency itself. Um, And in in particular, um, I have a significant interest in accessible technology issues. Um, Prior to uh, following Janine to HUD, uh, we both were at the Department of Justice, and um, I spent some time among other things, working on accessible technology issues. So I'm really pleased to join folks today and um, to talk about, uh, try to answer some of the questions. I also just want to say um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Claire uh, for many years. So I'm, uh, this is wonderful um, to, to be on the hot seat, Claire. Thank you for, for the opportunity. Thank you, Billy. I, I'm very fortunate to have known them for many years. Sorry, I was just going to add that um, it's a pleasure to be invited to speak with this group on an issue that's really important to um, people who are blind or have low vision. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm legally blind and have low vision and uh, am really interested myself in advancing access for people who are blind and have low vision and I look forward to working with you going forward. Great. Thanks, Janine. Swatha, I can kick us off with the first question, and then we can ping pong back and forth. Yeah. Um, So, uh, Janine and Billy, we will let you guys decide who wants to answer first, and feel free to go back and forth. Um, But let's start with the basics. Um, So what should persons who are blind or low vision know about housing discrimination laws? So, for instance, the Fair Housing Act, 
Section 504 or the Americans with Disabilities Act? Um, and are there any construction related requirements pertaining to people um, who are blind or low vision? All right, so I'm going to kick it off, and I figure what I'll start with is the Fair Housing Act part of the discussion, and then I'll segue over to Billy so he can handle the Section 504 and the ADA part of the discussion. So the Fair Housing Act applies to almost all rental housing uh, across the country. It also applies to the sale of housing to mortgage lending, uh, banks and other entities that deal with that, uh, mortgage insurance and renters insurance, and state and local regulation of land use and zoning relating to housing. And so it's a very powerful statute and it has um, a unique enforcement authority structure. Um, I'll start with the substantive provisions of the Fair Housing Act as it relates to disability discrimination. Um, but except with respect to the uh, construction related requirements, all of the protections of the Fair Housing Act apply to persons on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, sex, um, familial status, which means having children in a family, and individuals with disabilities. So there are several basic protections under the Fair Housing Act. Uh, the first is a prohibition of um, discriminating in the sale, the rental, or otherwise making available housing. And so what that means is uh, someone cannot refuse to sell or rent to you because of your disability, and um, they can't refuse to provide housing to you, and housing could include such things as access to a shelter or other residential accommodation provided by a government or a university because of your disability. The second provision is that you cannot be discriminated against on the basis um, in the terms and conditions of your housing. So if um, you are blind or have low vision um, and a landlord thinks that maybe you're not going to be uh, as good at care and uptake of your housing as other people, they can't require you to pay an additional deposit, to pay higher rent, or they can't really impose any other term or condition on you than is different from what is imposed on everyone else. Uh, the next provision under the Fair Housing Act is reasonable accommodation provision. And the language of the statute says that a housing provider cannot refuse to provide a reasonable accommodation that may be necessary for an individual with a disability to enjoy and use housing. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about that in more detail as we go on in this discussion, but I wanna cover the other two provisions of the act. Actually, there are three. 
The third is that you cannot make discriminatory statements or advertisements in the context of housing. So uh, it would be illegal for a housing provider to say they won't rent to people with disabilities, including people who are blind or have low vision or people with children or any of the other protected classes. Mm-hmm. Um, then there is also a confusing requirement called reasonable modifications. And it's different than terminology that's used under um, the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. A reasonable modification is when you want a change to the rental unit where you live or to the common area of a property because of a disability-related need. And under the Fair Housing Act, uh, you it, it's a violation of the act for a housing provider to refuse to allow you to make that kind of modification at your own expense. And that's one place where there's a big difference between the Fair Housing Act and the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act, as Billy's going to explain. And then finally, there are design and construction requirements relating to new multifamily housing. New multifamily housing is defined as any housing that has four or more units that was built after March 13th, 1991. So all, pretty much all new multifamily housing that's been built since then or in the future. And um, it's required to have certain features of accessible or adaptable design. And I'm gonna be very frank with you, very few of those requirements actually relate to access by persons who are blind or have low vision. There are common area requirements where someone um, signage must be accessible. And there are common area requirements relating to audible alarms and uh, uh, objects that are protruding objects that could cause a hazard or um, unprotected stairways. But those are really the extent of the provisions of the Fair Housing Act that relate to accessibility for people who are blind or have low vision in the design and construction context. So that's the Fair Housing Act in a nutshell. I'll leave it to Billy to talk about Section 504 and the ADA. I figure um, that way you'll be able to differentiate between us. So uh, thanks, Janine. So I'm going to talk about some overlapping federal laws uh, and some of the different requirements that apply. Uh, And the the reason that that's important is um, some of the housing providers that that folks may come across may have different obligations and you may have different rights. Um, Section 504, as Janine mentioned, is a, a statute that was enacted in 1973 that prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability in any program or activity that receives federal financial assistance. 
Um, each federal agency is responsible for enforcing it. The Department of Justice also has a role. We at HUD uh, enforce Section 504 uh, through a variety of means, uh, including investigations, and can even bring fund termination proceedings or make referrals to DOJ. Um, HUD provides, uh, in FY23, for example, HUD provided $72 billion in federal funds. Um, the, the way that that statute works is if um, a entity receives uh, federal funds, even a dollar, then the entire program or activity is covered. And it also covers uh, sub-recipients as well. A lot of uh, federal uh, grantees, they receive money and then they give it out. So for example, a state will receive money and then they'll give it to a local government or a nonprofit. Uh, sometimes there's you know several layers to that. Um, and the reason that's important is because there are some unique um, and enhanced requirements that come with uh, Section 504 coverage. Separately, uh, I'm sure folks are very familiar with the ADA. Uh, we also enforce the ADA, um, in particular Title II of the ADA um, at HUD, uh, as do other federal agencies. And um, Title II applies to uh, all of the services, programs, and activities of state and local governments and all of their instrumentalities. Um, it's virtually everything any state or local government does related to housing, community development. And because HUD is involved with providing funds to, you'd be surprised um, at the reach of the funds, the, the 72 billion per year-ish that we provide. Um, they reach down to things like uh, street corners and um, sidewalks and bike lanes and rec centers and uh, even schools, um, as well as housing. Community colleges are often covered, sometimes housing at uh, universities. Um, they're, they're, the programs we have um, provide large amounts of funding that go to a lot of different places. So the reach is, is quite expansive. So just kind of setting the stage about um, those two laws prohibit discrimination. They're, they're similar in their reach. They have a lot of similar provisions like Janine covered um, under the Fair Housing Act, but they're framed in a broader way because they apply outside of the housing context as well. Uh, but they also have some unique things that, that you should know about. Um, they have similar uh, but different prohibition or requirements that um, our uh, covered entities um, provide reasonable accommodations. And not only to provide reasonable accommodations, which can include policy changes or practice changes, uh, but to also include um, structural modifications, like the reasonable modification Janine mentioned under the Fair Housing Act, but these entities have to pay for those things, which is, is critical. Um, so one of the important things we'd always look at is their coverage under these other laws to determine if uh, the, you know, if the housing provider or other or entity is required to pay for a particular structural modification. Um, there are also uh, unique um, federal accessibility standards that apply under those laws. I'm not going to go deeply into uh, each of them because it's uh, 
it could be quite confusing, but um, sometimes there's a misconception that um, if something was built before a particular date, it's grandfathered, that doesn't exist under 504 in the ADA. Um, if the program is covered, uh, then there is at least what's called a program access obligation, uh, which means that the um, the the covered entity is obligated to either provide access to the program or to make structural modifications to get there. And that can include things like accessible routes and, you know, getting rid of those protruding objects that, that Janine had mentioned, or um, making sure that, you know, uh, there's a ramp uh, with, you know, clear markings and um, even uh, detectable warnings can be required in certain circumstances. Um, and, but there are also requirements under these laws for what are, what's called new construction, which, um, generally is stuff that has been, uh, developed, um, either by a state or local government or with, uh, HUD or other federal funds since, um, late eighties, early nineties, or has been altered or what we call it HUD substantially altered, which is like a, basically a major, uh, rehab of a particular housing development. And there are very um, specific um, requirements as far as the design and construction of those facilities, many of which, um, some of which I should say, um, although putting an asterisk because of what Janine mentioned about um, the when the framers of these uh, laws we're putting them into place. They spent a lot of time thinking about physical accessibility and not so much about um, accessibility for the blindness community. And also um, the world obviously has changed significantly as far as technology is concerned. So there are a lot of unique considerations that have come up in the past um, uh, 30 years. Um, but there are specific requirements that um, housing developments under uh, both 504 and the ADA have at least, um, in, if they're new construction, have at least 2% um, sensory units. Um, and those units have specific requirements um, that are meant to um, uh, support um, independent living by persons who uh, are blind or are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, also supplemented with reasonable accommodations. Um, then the last thing I'm going to mention uh, before turning it back over is in addition to these requirements under 504 and the ADA, there's also an obligation to, quote, take appropriate steps to ensure effective communication through the provision of appropriate auxiliary aids and services. And that essentially means that when information is being communicated in all the different ways by one of these covered entities, and there are many, many thousands of them across the country, probably millions, that they are obligated to ensure that that communication is effective. And if that requires the use of auxiliary aids and services, that they are um, maybe obligated to use a particular one, including those that um, the individual with the disability specifically requests, they're supposed to give what's called primary consideration to that. Um, but it must be effective. So um, if it is, um, you know, it could be um, through a website that provides, um, you know, lease up information um, 
or you know provides information about which units are available, that would need to be accessible under this provision. Um, if uh, an individual required um, a lease in an electronic um, version, um, so it could be used with a screen reader, that could be, uh, or you know, enlarged text, um, that could be required. Um, a whole host of um, you know auxiliary aids and services that may be necessary. So, um, in addition to Fair Housing Act requirements, and there are some other requirements under these laws that may be um, applicable at different times, but that's a, a general overview. Great. So, thanks for that um, overview of the laws and obligations that housing providers to have. Um, since you kind of touched on it, um, what obligations can you expand on? What obligations the housing providers have? To ensure effective communications, you mentioned um, the the need for for um, alternate means, but could you guys expand on that a little more? And extra ability. So let me start with the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act does not have a specific provision on effective communication but effective communication is dealt with under the reasonable accommodation provisions of the Fair Housing Act. So for example, if um, someone uh, someone wanted to um, have a lease in an electronic format, it would be a reasonable accommodation to request that or if they wanted their mortgage lending documents to be provided in electronic format, that would also be a reasonable accommodation. If there were some type of a um, an important meeting with a housing provider where, for example, they wanted to talk to you, uh, a tenant about eviction, and if the person were uh, deaf or hard of hearing and needed an auxiliary aid, such as a sign language interpreter, that would also be a reasonable accommodation under the Fair Housing Act. There are just a wide variety of different reasonable accommodations that can be provided under the Fair Housing Act. Um, but the housing provider may not be required to expend as much it'll depend on what the housing provider's resources are if they are not recipients of federal financial assistance. Billy? Yeah, so um, auxiliary aids and services are very are varied. Um, I'm going to read from the DOJ's ADA Title II regulation as to the list of items. Uh, this was updated in, in 2010. Um, and it, it lists some things that are a bit antiquated at this point, um, but also includes some updated things that I think are, are helpful uh, to know about. Um, and then I'm going to move to talk about some auxiliary aids and services that we've specifically required in um, some of our settlements um, that you may be interested in. So um, the list in the DOJ's Title II ADA reg says qualified readers taped texts, audio recordings, brailled materials and displays, screen reader software, magnification software, optical readers, secondary auditory programs, large print materials, 
accessible electronic and information technology. That one's really important these days, of course, or other effective methods of making visually delivered materials available to individuals who are blind or have low vision. And so, and I mentioned the, the accessible electronic and information technology, um, because as you all are obviously very more, (laughs) very aware, um, everything's moving towards this digital, you know, place. So, um, there are, and it's just constantly changing and incredibly frustrating. Um, I know, um, there's an obligation, um, to take appropriate steps by these recipients to ensure they're communicating effectively. And, um, there are obligations to ensure that it's accessible, um, electronic and information technology. So for example, um, we see in the housing context, a lot of new, um, touchscreen displays uh, at um, front entrances to multifamily buildings. If those are covered by Section 504 in the ADA, um, we would want those organizations to be providing effective communication. Um, That is probably not a good way to do that um, unless they are really thinking carefully about how to make sure that it's accessible. Um, you know, and I mentioned a couple of other examples, but let me, let me run through this list. We had a a settlement, um, uh, and, and really this is, this is Janine's big, uh, big win, but I'm going to talk about it briefly, um, as I supported a little bit on it, uh, with the city of LA, um, a few years ago. And in that case, um, we required the development of an effective communication policy, that um, identified a number of auxiliary aids and um, accessibility-related features for individuals with sensory disabilities. That's what it's called under the the settlement agreement. And it said, for persons who are blind or have low vision, auxiliary aids and enhanced accessibility features provided pursuant to the city's program shall include but are not limited to the following. Appliances and gym equipment with buttons, knobs, tactile markings, and audio features rather than touchscreens, intercom, and other security systems at apartment building main entrances must be accessible to persons with sensory disabilities. Entry system cannot rely on a resident's or guest's ability to see. Key fob access to controlled areas rather than touchscreens or key cards must be provided. Thermostats and air conditioning controls must have buttons rather than touch screens and must provide audio feedback. Apartment mailboxes must have bump dots or raised lettering. Vending machines must have braille, large print, or audio features that enable use without vision. Apartment doors and doors to public and common use areas must have raised letters, numbers, braille, and large print signage. Elevator buttons with braille and raised large print. Audible elevator floor indicators. Uh, that's something that's required in new construction, but um, accessible electronic copies of leases, development rules and development notices that conform to the W3C's guidance on applying WCAG 2.0 to non-web information and communications technologies, so WCAG 2 ICT, uh, some folks may be familiar with, um, and EPUB 3 for longer documents, enhanced lighting, emergency evacuation and accessible formats, handrails, on stairways, contrast on stair noses, effective communication training provided to to, uh, development personnel upon request. 
when gym equipment and appliances are provided, including but not limited to exercise equipment, ranges, microwaves, dishwashers, washers, and dryers, they must be provided so they are accessible to persons who are blind or have low vision. The reason I wanted to mention this in addition to the, the list of auxiliary aids and services included in this particular agreement is that this affected um, over 800 developments across the city of Los Angeles um, and also um, has a, a, been a model for other uh, jurisdictions across the country. So I, I just wanted to note that to uh, point you to that. Um, there's much more we could talk about, but those are a couple of highlights. Thank you. Um, Claire, do you want to talk about, or do you want, you want to lead into a question about um, how folks have complaints about housing? Yeah. Um, thank you so much. So we've heard some really great um, explanation of the law and all the many different intersecting laws, but now let's get down kind of to the the basics. How can someone file a complaint as it pertains to housing discrimination? I know there's a lot of confusion about where to go. Um, so can you talk about the FIPS or the FHIPs um, and going to the FHEO HUD? Sure, I'll take a stab at it and Billy can supplement as needed. So HUD funds a network of nonprofit organizations across the country that uh, serve as advocates for people who have fair housing issues. And the fair housing issues can arise under any of the statutes that we we talked about, but the funding is specifically uh, provided pursuant to uh, legislation associated with the Fair Housing Act. And um, we don't have one of these organizations in every community, but we do have a list of these organizations uh, that you can provide to your membership. And we've sent you a link and I can also send you a separate document listing them. So uh, you can either go to one of these organizations, one of these FIPS as we call them, and they will work with you directly either to uh, contact a housing provider on your behalf or to work with you to file a complaint with the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity at HUD. And um, HUD has a complaint process that's fairly similar to the complaint process that's operated at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission related to employment, except at HUD, we deal with housing and community uh, development programs. So under the Fair Housing Act, uh, all you need to do is allege the uh, conduct that uh, you believe violated your rights under the Fair Housing Act and um, identify uh, those entities that were involved in the denial of rights. And um, that complaint goes to the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, and it, that complaint can be done in writing or orally. And um, the FHEO office uh, or a state agency that is contracted to FHEO will follow up on the complaint and conduct an investigation and attempt to conciliate the complaint. Um, and so uh, we actually, from the FHEO perspective, um, 
if there's not a state agency in the area that has an agreement with HUD, FHEO itself does the investigations and it has an investigative staff. If it's a systemic complaint, then um, typically it is our office and the Office of General Counsel that works with um, the investigators in the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity to jointly investigate and achieve a resolution to the issue. So the unique part of the process under the Fair Housing Act is uh, if we cannot achieve an amicable resolution um, that uh, resolves the issues for the complainant and we believe there is reasonable cause uh, that discrimination occurred, um, my office in uh, HUD OGC files a charge of discrimination against the housing provider and then any party to that charge can uh, decide either whether they're going to stay at HUD and go through an ALJ process where my office represents the, um, the complainant or they can elect and go to the Department of Justice where the Department of Justice assigns an attorney in headquarters or in one of the US attorney's offices to handle uh, any additional investigation and filing a lawsuit in federal court. And we have a very active uh, practice in terms of handling charges of discrimination. I will say, however, that under the Fair Housing Act, we actually receive very few complaints of discrimination from individuals who are blind or have low vision. Uh, the most common type of complaint we receive from all persons with disabilities relates to service animals or assistance animals for people who have untrained animals that assist them. Uh, that's the number one type of complaint, a denial of reasonable accommodation complaint that we receive under the Fair Housing Act, but we see very, very few uh, housing-related complaints from people who are blind or have low vision. Billy, you want to pick up for Section 504 in the ADA? Yeah, so um, I'm try I was listening very intently to you, Janine, and uh, lost the thread of the question. I think it was about enforcement process. How do you file folks file complaints regarding the discrimination? Um, so it's a very similar process um, as to what Janine was outlining under uh, Section 504 in the ADA. Um, HUD can. Uh, can open an investigation based on a complaint uh, from a member of the public regarding uh, disability discrimination and many other protected characteristics. Um, or it can engage in what's called a compliance review where um, if it hears of um, a particular uh, um, action that is likely problematic, um, then it can um, undertake an investigation of that practice. Um, and uh, oftentimes the uh, investigations overlap significantly with the Fair Housing Act. There's a lot of overlap um, with our housing providers. Uh, certainly if it's a housing provider, it's, it's gonna be covered by the Fair Housing Act. Um, but um, if it's not um, like we provide money to states and localities to under things like our community development block grant program, or a version that 
relates to disaster relief um, to, like I said, you know, support community assets uh, like schools and rec centers and streetscapes and that, that type of thing. Um, the investigation occurs, uh, FHEO would con- collect information uh, from the parties to verify or, um, you know, determine if there's been a violation, which can include interviews, document requests, on-sites, um, possibly, you know, a third party conducting surveys. Um, and once that's complete, um, generally there's an effort to try to resolve the matter through voluntary compliance. Um, that the document I was reading from previously related to LA was a voluntary compliance agreement, or it's essentially a settlement agreement um, to resolve issues. Um, if uh, settlement uh, is not a good idea or cannot be attained, um, HUD can issue what's called a letter of findings, which de- details the um, the facts and the legal violations and the remedies required to fix those problems. Um, if the the matter cannot be settled after so, you know making findings, um, there are a couple of things that that HUD could do. One, it could take the matter before an administrative law judge um, and seek to affect the funding to the particular recipient, if it's a recipient of federal funds. Um, and we did that a couple of years ago. Um, that, Or it can refer the matter to the Department of Justice, um, uh, similar to what Janine was mentioning, although it's at HUD's discretion, um, as she was mentioning with the Fair Housing Act. Um, the FIPS don't um, are focused on the Fair Housing Act and not on um, Section 504 and ADA violations. Those come directly to HUD. But like I said, there's often overlap in those uh, enforcement under those laws. And some of the FIP organizations that we deal with, for example, one of the most active on disability issues is Access Living in Chicago. They will frequently handle the 504 or the ADA complaint, as well as the Fair Housing Act complaint. And one of the things that's interesting about the Fair Housing Act is there's a lot of case law on the topic of testing. And so I know that um, from time to time, um, blind individuals will wonder if they're being denied rental housing because of their disability. And there is the ability under the Fair Housing Act through these Fair Housing Initiative Program FIP agencies for them to conduct testing. If they believe it's a a worthwhile use of resources, we fund them and they can go out and test a, a housing provider to determine if someone with a certain protected characteristic is being denied housing because of that. So for instance, um, there has been testing in the context of uh, blind people who use guide dogs in the past that has identified uh, discrimination because the person used a guide dog. All right, great. Thank you both. Um, do we have any questions question in the audience? You can take one or two. Any questions? We do. All right. Deb, do you want right. to get um, Yeah, go ahead. Your first hand is Casey. All right, Casey. Okay, my, question, my question is a little different. 
I live in a, and I, and I wonder what H, how much HUD is doing about this, and that's online property management. Where I live um, in the condo association, and there's another one not too far from me where another blind person lives, and we both have sighted spouses now. But in my case, everything is online. It's not accessible. Uh, you can some of the headings and stuff and the documents they send me are accessible. But to fill out anything on their website for, to make a request is impossible. These are this is an online property management. So what is HUD doing to look into maybe certifying these companies so that that they are compliant when they are actually property management online as opposed to a personal company? So let me ask um, one of the questions that we would need to know in order to respond is whether it is a HUD funded type of housing. Um, so let me tell you from the private housing perspective, what a person would be able to do is to seek a reasonable accommodation and a reasonable accommodation would involve a discussion between HUD and the housing provider where we would explain that they can either have a process where they accommodate everyone by providing accessible forms that the person does not have to complete on the website or they make their website accessible. That's probably how we would handle it under the Fair Housing Act framework because there are no accessibility requirements under the Fair Housing Act relating to property management. So it would be a reasonable accommodation process. Billy? Yeah, and um, to Janine's point, if it's uh, a Section 504 covered uh, entity, so um, if there's some HUD funds that um, are received by the organization that you're talking about, it's probably unlikely um, based on the where HUD funding goes, but possible. Um, but if there were, um, in addition to reasonable accommodations, similar analysis that Janine just laid out under the Fair Housing Act, there would be the obligation to take appropriate steps to ensure effective communication. As we all know, that's wildly not met. Um, and, you know, electronic information is being put out all over the place that is inaccessible. And, um, but, you know, certainly there is a mechanism. The one thing I would say, you know, this isn't really our wheelhouse. Um, it's, it's more the DOJs or um, private individuals can pursue title three of the ADA may apply in a situation like that. And it has a very similar um, set of requirements for uh, ensuring effective communication Um a lot of um, it's become clear over the past, you know, couple of decades that certainly where there's a nexus to some kind of facility that um, a web only presence um, would have coverage under title three of the ADA. I've always viewed it as broader, but um, some, some courts have not. And um, so in a situation like that, there may be some, um, mechanism under title three to cause uh either unfortunately they the doj regs call it a reasonable modification not to confuse everything but it's essentially a reasonable accommodation under title three or to uh make things accessible um, on the web site itself 
And when Billy and I were both at Department of Justice, we did um, use the leverage of the ADA to require a number of entities to provide accessible websites. Um, and we're looking forward to DOJ doing more in that area going in the future. All right, I think we're, I think we're out of time. Um, so Janine, Warden, and Billy Lynch, thank you. And thanks Claire for being co-host. Thank you so much, Latha, and thank you again to our, our presenters. This was great. Thanks. Our pleasure, and uh, we'd love to speak to you further in the future if you find it helpful. Yes, we, we will post the links and on um, the document once Jean sent it of the FHIPs and the fair housing you FHEOs. So. Sure. Have a great day. Thank you. you Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.